ಬಂದಿದೆ ಬಂದಿದೆ ಹಿರಿಯರ ವಾಣಿ ಹಿರಿಯರೇ ಇತರ ರಾಜಾರಾಣಿ ಹತ್ತೋಣ ನಾವು ಅವರ ನೆನಪಿನ ದೋಣಿ ಕೇಳುತ್ತಾ ಖುಷಿ ಪಡೋಣ ಹಿರಿಯರ ವಾಣಿ ಕೇಳ್ತಾನೆ ಖುಷಿ ಪಡೋಣ ಹಿರಿಯರ ವಾಣಿ ಕೇಳ್ತಾನೆ ಖುಷಿ ಪಡೋಣ ಹಿರಿಯರ ವಾಣಿ ಇದು ಹಿರಿಯರ ಕತೆ ಹಿರಿಯರ ಜೊತೆ ನಿಮ್ಮ ಹಿರಿಯರ ವಾಣಿಯಲ್ಲಿ ಕೇಳ್ತಾನೆ ಇರಿ ಖುಷಿಯಾಗಿರಿ ಹಲೋ ಲಿಸ್ನರ್ಸ್ ದಿಸ್ ಇಸ್ ಯುವರ್ ಆರ್ಜಿ ಸಿಯೋನಾ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಐ ವೆಲ್ಕಮ್ ಯು ಆಲ್ ಟು ಅನುಭವ್ ಅ ಜಾಯಿಂಟ್ ಪ್ರಾಜೆಕ್ಟ್ ಆಫ್ ನ್ಯಾಷನಲ್ ಇನ್ಸ್ಟಿಟ್ಯೂಟ್ ಆಫ್ ಸೋಷಲ್ ಡಿಫೆನ್ಸ್ ಮಿನಿಸ್ಟ್ರಿ ಆಫ್ ಸೋಷಲ್ ಜಸ್ಟೀಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಎಂಪವರ್ಮೆಂಟ್ ಗವರ್ಮೆಂಟ್ ಆಫ್ ಇಂಡಿಯಾ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಮೀಡಿಯಾ ಫಾರ್ ಕಮ್ಯುನಿಟಿ ಫೌಂಡೇಶನ್ ಇಂಪ್ಲಿಮೆಂಟೆಡ್ ಬೈ ನೈಟಿಂಗಲ್ಸ್ ಮೆಡಿಕಲ್ ಟ್ರಸ್ಟ್ ಪ್ರಾಜೆಕ್ಟ್ ಕನ್ಸೀವ್ಡ್ ಬೈ ಡಾಕ್ಟರ್ಸ್ ಆರ್ ಶ್ರೀಧರ್ ಪ್ರಾಜೆಕ್ಟ್ ಇನ್ವೆಸ್ಟಿಗೇಟರ್ ಆಲೋಕ್ ವರ್ಮಾ ಕೋಆರ್ಡಿನೇಟರ್ಸ್ ಪೂಜಾ ಮುರಾದ ಸಾಯಿ ಸುಧಾ ಕೌಶಲ್ಯ ಗವರ್ಮೆಂಟ್ ಆಫ್ ಇಂಡಿಯಾ ಹ್ಯಾಸ್ ಇನಿಷಿಯೇಟೆಡ್ ಎಲ್ಡರ್ ಲೈನ್ ಟೋಲ್ ಫ್ರೀ ನಂಬರ್ ಒನ್ ಫೋರ್ ಫೈವ್ ಸಿಕ್ಸ್ ಸೆವೆನ್ ಎಲ್ಡರ್ಸ್ ಆರ್ ಎನಿ ಒನ್ ಆನ್ ಬಿಹಾಫ್ ಆಫ್ ಎಲ್ಡರ್ಸ್ ಕ್ಯಾನ್ ಕಾಲ್ ಬಿಟ್ವೀನ್ ಮಾರ್ನಿಂಗ್ ಏಟ್ ಎ ಎಮ್ ಟು ಏಟ್ ಪಿ ಎಮ್ ಫಾರ್ ಎನಿ ಕ್ವೆಶನ್ಸ್ ಆರ್ ಕ್ವೆರೀಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಸಪೋರ್ಟ್ ಟು ಎಲ್ಡರ್ಲಿ is one of these pe- persons who is really very very advanced in his uh, whatever his profession and today he is going to talk about the requirements of a will now this is a very frequently handled subject yes but listening to this from an experienced senior advocate makes a sea of difference all the multitude doubts uncertainties associated with this delicate yet somber aspect can become a walk through with the right inputs and advice Prashun Gupta from Kolkata is a senior educate now all of 80 years he graduated from the prestigious Jadhpur University in Kolkata and later did his LLB from the King's College University of London he has practiced as a lawyer from the Calcutta High Court later as a law officer with Bata Bamashel and Greenlays Bank presently he is practicing in the Calcutta High Court since 1990 till date he has a passion for tennis and still takes part in tournaments he serves big in the law courts too he drives to work even now he is an avid reader also now meet the longest tenured member of the calcutta club 50 years and counting actually he is one of the most debonair and suave personalities i have ever known a very big welcome to his wife joyshridi also thank you for joining us prashunda and joyshridi now over to you prashunda the field is all yours Can you all hear me? Yes, yes sir. You can hear me? Okay. Uh then I'm starting now. Right. Uh I have noted that uh, there have been a number of sessions in the past on this subject. So I'm quite sure all of you quite know quite a bit about it. So I wonder if I can add anything to that picture today. I try not to. this is a very mundane subject and it's difficult to make it interesting i hope at least that uh, i'll be able to make it uh, informative if not interesting okay uh i don't know if you've seen the synopsis that i have sent the synopsis starts with will versus intestacy or testamentary versus intestate succession now what is all that 
Now, it is not compulsory for a person to make a will. If he makes the will, then his property goes to the persons named in the will. Well, what happens if he doesn't make a will? If he doesn't make a will, then the law says what is to go to whom and in what shares. So it's a question of the will versus no will. The no will situation in which the law lays down who is to get what and in what shares is called intestacy. Therefore, if there is a will, then the property goes to whoever is mentioned in the will. If there is no will, then it goes according to the law laid down in Acts of Parliament, and this is called intestacy. So that's what the first thing in this synopsis is all about, will versus intestacy. To say the same thing in a slightly different language, so that there is no legal difficulty in the words used, is to say that one is a testamentary succession, the other is intestate succession. Testamentary succession is when there is a will. And intestate succession is when there is no will. So again, if you leave a will, it's a case of testamentary succession. Big words, but all that it means is that there is a will. And succession is in accordance with that will. Intestate succession means there is no will. So the property of the deceased goes according to law. So that is intestate succession. So these two situations are legally described in these sometimes highfalutin words. Will versus intestacy or testamentary versus intestate succession. Okay, that's by way of an introduction. Now, we all know what a will is. Many of us have already written one. But in the eyes of the law, what exactly is a will? This is typical of lawyers, you might say. Because the law goes to the extent of defining a will. When it is perfectly clear to everybody what a will is. But since there is a legal or statutory definition of a will, uh, may I just take the liberty of reading out the statutory definition of a will. This is just one sentence, so I hope it's not too complicated. This is what statutorily a will is. Will means the legal declaration of the intention of the testator with respect to his property, which he desires to be carried into effect after his death. That's not too complicated, is it? Let's just read it again. Will means the legal declaration of the intention of the testator with respect to his property, which he desires to be carried into effect after his death. Now, from that definition, let's take the concluding words. After his death. Those are the last three words in that definition. Now, let us look at the significance of these three words after his death. When a person writes a will, 
he should make it clear whether this is to take effect on his death or whether this is to take effect now. If it is to take effect now, while he's still living, it's not a win. It's an immediate transfer. On the other hand, if it is to take effect only after his death, then it is not an immediate transfer. Then it is a win. But the language used must make that clear. And if it is not made clear, confusion prevails. There have been all kinds of cases regarding this because the language used simply wasn't clear. Perhaps you'll find it interesting if I talk to you about one such case. This was a lady who wrote out her own document in language she thought, doubtless thought appropriate. But this created immense confusion. Cases ensued. It went from the lower courts by way of appeals to the higher courts, to the high court, and then eventually to the Supreme Court. It had to go all the way through litigations and appeals to the Supreme Court because the language used wasn't clear. The Supreme Court then gave a decision on this. That was the final decision. This was a 2010 Supreme Court decision, some 11, 12 years ago. Perhaps I could read out to you just a few sentences of what that lady had said. The words that created this confusion. This is what she said. I'm now reading it out to you. I settled this property on you 16 persons by executing this settlement deed. From this day onwards, I and you shall enjoy the undermentioned land and house, etc., without creating any encumbrance or making any alienation whatsoever. During my lifetime, I shall collect the rental income from the undermentioned land and house, etc., and after paying the municipal taxes with the remaining income, I shall spend my life as I wish till the end of my days. After my death, you 16 persons shall become eligible and have absolute right to sell the undermentioned land and house at the prevalent market price. I have no right whatsoever to cancel this settlement deed for any reason whatsoever or to alter these terms. I execute this settlement deed of my own free will. This is what she had said. What is this? Is this an immediate transfer? Or is this a will to take effect only after her death? This went right up to the Supreme Court, as I said. Now, parts of what I read out to you suggest that this is an immediate settlement. There are other parts which suggest that this was to take effect only after her death, which would make it a will. I don't know how interested you'll be, but maybe you'd like to look at this. Which I have just read out to you. Would you like to look at it? 
what I'll do is I'll hold up the page so that you can see that page. And I'll talk to you from the sidelines. This is the page. Okay. Now, there are some things there which are written in bold type. The first sentence is in bold type. Towards the end, there is another sentence in bold type. Now, these suggest that there is an immediate transfer, which would make it not a will, but an immediate transfer. I'm reading again the board part. I settled this property on you 16 persons by executing this settlement deed. From this day onwards, I and you shall enjoy the undimensioned land and house, etc. Now, go down a little further towards the end. And it's the last part one sentence, which is also in bold type. I shall have no right whatsoever to cancel this settlement deed for any reason whatsoever or to alter these terms. Now, these two parts suggest that there is an immediate transfer. It's not to take effect after her death, it's to take effect now, which would mean that this is an immediate transfer and not a will. Other parts of what she had said suggested something else. Now look at the underlined portions, not the bold type, but the underlined portions. Now I'll read that part out, out to you now. You can look at it here. The underlined portion says, during my lifetime, I shall collect the rental income from the undermentioned land and houses, etc. And after paying the municipal taxes with the remaining income, I shall spend my life as I wish till the end of my days. After my death, you 16 persons shall become eligible and have absolute right to sell the undermentioned land and house at the prevalent market rate. Now here she's talking about during her lifetime, she shall collect the rental income and after paying tax, etc. what she's going to do with it. These words suggest that she's retaining this. I shall collect the rental income and it is only to go after her death. Not now, which would make it a will. So what was it? An immediate transfer? Or what is it to, was it to take effect after her death, which would make it a will? Now, this went right up to the Supreme Court. And uh, the Supreme Court held that this was not a will. It was an immediate transfer. It was an immediate transfer, all right. But retaining a life interest. That means you can make a transfer while retaining just a life interest, which means that during my lifetime, I shall own the property, but after that, it's trans trans immediately transferred. The person who retains a life interest can't transfer the property because he or she only has a life interest which can't be transferred. It will only exist during her lifetime. So the Supreme Court held in this case that this was not a will. It affected an immediate transfer, but only subject to a life interest being retained by the concerned lady. 
So this was the Supreme Court decision. It was a 2010 Supreme Court decision that some 11, 12 years ago. Okay, so moving on from there. See, as I just said, if there is an immediate transfer, this transfer stands affected. It can't be undone. It has already been transferred. The property has gone to somebody else. Now it's not yours. You can't do anything with it. It stands transferred. But if there is a will, you can change it at any time. Until you die, you can keep changing your will as many times as you like. Every day if you want, in theory. Each time you make a will, the previous will, if any, gets revoked. In other words, it's only the last will that prevails. You can start every will by saying that this is the last will and testament of so and so, etc. That doesn't mean we can't make any more. You can tomorrow make another will saying exactly that. And it is only the last will that you make that prevails. As soon as you make a new will, the old will stands revoked. This situation where you can always change your will is sometimes described as the ambulatory nature of a will. That simply means that you can change it at any time. It's not fixed. It's not like a transfer. It's not like a gift which you have made, which goes out of your hands. A will can be changed at any time. This is why, apart from a will being described as being ambulatory in nature, it is also revocable. You can revoke a will. You can't revoke a gift, but you can revoke a will. I withdraw it. You leave it to anyone you like. It doesn't matter who. It's up to you. So will is ambulatory in nature and it is revocable. There is, however, an exception to the revocability aspect of a will. In certain limited circumstances, you cannot revoke a will. Although you're still alive, you've made a will, but a situation has arisen, the result of which is you can no longer revoke that will. It's an exceptional kind of situation. The rule still is that a will is revocable. This is an exception to that rule. As has been said, it's the exception that proves the rule. Unless there is a rule, how can you have an exception? So the exception proves the rule. This is the exception. The exception relates to mutual wills. Now what's that? Mutual wills? What exactly is that? This is an interesting concept. To have mutual wills, there must be at least two people. You can't have mutual wills with just one person. There must be two people. Such two people in practice are usually husband and wife. In a situation where the husband and wife have separate properties. Husband is a property person, the wife is a property person. 
they may come to an understanding with each other that they will live, leave their respective properties to some specified people, usually their children. The husband and wife may agree that, look, let us each make a will, leaving everything to our children. I'll make a will with regard to my property and you make a will with regard to your property. So the husband and wife agree that they'll make separate wills of their separate properties, but each one leaving everything he or she has to say the children. Now, one of them will go first, the other will go next. So let us use alphabets to identify these two. The first one to die, let us call him or her T1. And the next white one to die, let us call her T2. So the husband and wife are T1 and T2. We know their husband and wife, but until one of them dies, we don't know who is T1 and who is T2. When one of them dies, that was T1. And the one who remains, that is T2. So we have T1 and T2. In a situation like this, if there is an agreement and if T1 and T2 make these wills in accordance with the agreement, then after the death of T1, T2 cannot change his or her will. There is an agreement. The wills are made in accordance with that agreement. Then one of them dies. As soon as that first one dies, whether it is the husband or the wife, then that is T1. When T1 dies, T2 from that point of time cannot change the will. That becomes her last will. So this is the exception. Now let us look at the elements of this mutual will situation. Element one, there has to be an agreement between them. If accidentally they do this, each one makes a will, leaving things to the children, then this mutual will situation doesn't arise. It's just a coincidence. It has to be shown that there was an agreement between T1 and T2 that they will make wills like this. Right. Now, after the agreement, usually T1 and T2, as I've said, are husband and wife. It doesn't necessarily have to be. There was one case where T1 and T2 were actually sisters, not husband and wife. So this can apply not only to husbands and wives, which is the usual thing, but also to sisters. If so, although I have not come across any case like that. If it can be between two sisters, then surely it can be between two brothers also, or between a brother and a sister. Whether it could apply to any other two kinds of persons, I don't know, and that's a gray area in the law. We'll have to wait and see. Whether this mutual will situation could apply to persons other than husband and wife, sisters, brothers, etc. Now, that is the agreement 
requirement of mutual wills. Let's examine this in a little bit more detail. Suppose there is the agreement, then T1 and T2, they're both alive. We don't know who's going to be T1 and T2, but both of them are alive. They have made their wills in accordance with the agreement. So far, so good. The mutual will scenario is present. Then let us say, one of them changes his or her mind. He or she makes a different will. He revokes the will. Or she revokes the will. In spite of the agreement, and in spite of the agreements, uh, wills made in accordance with that agreement. What happens? Now, if both of them are living in a situation where there is an agreement and there are wills in accordance with that agreement, and one of them goes and changes his or her will. Now, if he or she does this, the other person, is freed of his obligation and is freed from the agreement. He can say, oh, if you backed out of this agreement, then I too shall do so. I shall leave it to whomever I like. Then the mutual will situation doesn't arise. If while both of them are still alive, one of them changes his or her will, the other party to that agreement is freed from his or her obligations under that agreement and can then make whatever will he or she likes. This, when one person changes the will after the agreement, after the will's made in accordance with the agreement. Okay, now let's take that one step further. There is the agreement. There are the wills made in accordance with the agreement and one of them dies. Now we know who T1 is. Either the husband or the wife dies. Now, when that happens, the living person, the person who survives, cannot change his or her will anymore. He or she is stuck with that will. Why is this? What is the legal explanation for this? If both of them had been alive, they would have been freed from the agreement. But when one of them dies, then the other one can't change the will. What is the legal principle behind this? The law has implied a trust of the survivor of the properties mentioned in her will or his will. The law has said, this is how the case law is developed, that if there is an agreement and wills made in accordance with it, and one of the parties dies, then the other person's property is covered by that will become the subject matter of a trust by law. That's called a constructive trust. And since that person's property becomes part of a trust, it's no longer his or hers, so you can't make a will. It's gone out of your hands because the law has implied a trust, which is called a constructive trust. Because of the trust, it's gone out of the hands of T1 
who is still alive? Shall we carry on then? Yes, sir, please. Okay. Yes, I was talking of the mutual wills situation and I was talking of a situation where after the agreement and after the wills have been made in accordance with this agreement, one of the parties dies and the other party goes and makes another will anyway, which is not in accordance with the agreement. That will would not be valid. When that person dies, his executor or administrator or her executor or administrator will have to administer not that last will because that last will is invalid, but the previous will, the property covered by which has become the subject matter of a trust implied by law called a constructive trust. So to summarize all that mambo jumbo, in a case of mutual wills, where following an agreement, two persons make wills in accordance with the agreement, usually leaving things to their children. Then after the one of the two dies, the other one can't change the will. So this constitutes an exception to the rule that you can always change a will. In this scenario, which I've been talking about, after T1 dies, T2 can't change the will. If he does, it will be ignored, it won't be valid. Right? Now, so much then for the ambulatory or revocable nature of a will and the exception to that, which is mutual wills and some bare bones of what mutual wills mean and how they become, how and when they become effective. I hope that all that I'm saying is not too technical or too detailed. Uh, so to keep this such matters where everybody can be at least generally interested or find it useful, let us go on to another topic related to wills. Uh, this may be of some interest to many of you. Uh, the next thing I'm going to talk about is witnessing a will. Most of you know that uh, wills have to have witnesses. Yes, we right. They have to have witnesses. Now, most documents do not require witnessing. It's not compulsory. You can prove the document by signatures and other evidence. Or so many commercial contracts that we have, you know, in the world, the world of commerce, contracts are signed. There may be witnesses, but they aren't necessary. It's not compulsory. Only in some very limited cases has the law said that in this kind of document, 
they have to be witnesses. That's compulsory. That's mandatory. Without that, the document is not valid. The most important instance of that is a will. The law has laid down that a will must have a minimum of two witnesses. No matter where in India they're made, no matter where the properties are situated in India, doesn't matter whether it's a male or a female or married or unmarried or whatever, a will has to have at least two witnesses. Now, what are they supposed to do, these witnesses? Now, let us look at what, these, what purpose these witnesses are supposed to serve. What are they supposed to do? Now, let us look at the requirements. This is all in an act of parliament called the Indian Succession Act 1925. Never mind that. Um, now, both the witnesses, I've just said there must be two witnesses. Both the witnesses must see the testator signing. When I say testator, I also include the testatrix, that is a female. The female gender for testator is testatrix. So both the witnesses must actually see the testator signing. They must be there when the testator signed and see with their own eyes that there is the testator signing the will. There is another method that's a bit complicated. I won't go into it now. That's too much of a fine detail. Let's keep this broad. There must be two witnesses and both of them must see the testator signing. Now, if and when this will has to be proved in a court of law, normally both the witnesses must be present in court and give evidence. Two witnesses are compulsory. No getting away from that. Then next step is, it is advisable if and when the will has to be proved in court, that both these witnesses should be present in court, should go into the witness box and give evidence. What do they have to give evidence with regard to? Well, they both have to say that they actually saw the testator sign. They both have to say, yes, I was standing there when the testator signed that will. That's I know it was he who signed. That's why I can say that, yes, that is the testator signature. He signed in my presence. So both of them must say this. Now, all very well. But what happens if, say, one of the two witnesses has died? Now, in that case, only one witness is available. And that one witness has to give evidence if the matter goes to court. But the requirement that there should be two witnesses remains. But here is only one witness giving evidence. How then do you satisfy the requirement of the law that there must be a minimum of two witnesses? If only one witness gives evidence, then he has to be able to say 
Not only that, that is the testator's signature. I saw him sign. Not only that, this is my signature. I'm one of the witnesses. Yes, I signed and that's my signature. He has to say that also. Then he has to be able to say truthfully that there was another witness present. He was also there when the testator signed. He too saw the testator sign. And then he himself signed and I saw him do it. So witness number two is so-and-so. I know that's his signature because he too, like the testator, signed in my presence. First the testator signed, then I signed, then he signed. We are all three present. He has to be able to say that. This would satisfy the requirement of the law that there have to be at least two witnesses and that the signatures of both these witnesses have to be proved in addition to the signature of the testator himself. Right. What happens if both the witnesses are dead? Then what? What do we do? Well, I'm afraid in that case, you have to try and find other persons who can prove all three signatures. That of the testator, that of witness one, that of witness two. You have to find people who know the signatures, like say bank managers who may have these signatures on record in their bank accounts. You have to call them as witnesses. The testator's bank manager could come and say, this, this signature is the same as that in our record. So this, this, according to our record, this is correct. That's his signature. Same with the two witnesses. Some bank manager witness one, some bank manager witness two. That is troublesome. It would be easier if the two witnesses could be themselves present. But if the circumstances are such that both have passed away, then you may have to do this. Now, for this reason, we generally advise people who come to us for advice in such matters, that when you, you pick witnesses to a testator's signature, pick people who are a lot younger than you, at least a generation after you. So as to increase the chance of their being alive when you're gone. So when the testator dies, the chance of the witnesses being present is that much higher if they are much younger people, preferably from the next generation. So when a person writes his or her will, there have to be witnesses, of course, and who would be a witness is up to you, up to the testator, he or she can choose. That I want some, such and such and such trustworthy people to be my witnesses. Try and pick people who are a lot younger than you, preferably a generation after you. Big age gap, adults, but young adults. And of course they have to be trustworthy because after you're dead and gone, they have to go, to, they might have to go to court and give evidence about the win. Now, these are some of the very basic points about witnessing a will. So, I've covered definition, I've covered, covered revocability, I've covered mutual trust, uh, mutual wills, sorry, not mutual trust, mutual wills, and I've covered witnessing very briefly.
bare bones of the subject. Let me go on to something else which can create confusion in the minds of people. It's a bit legalistic. I'll try and explain this to you in just plain words without the legalese. Hills may have to be probated. Oh, what is this? Probated? What's that? What is probate? Well, a probate is a very specialized kind of a proceeding in court. Probate proceedings can only be court proceedings. You can't have probate without court proceedings. It's not just a document signed. It's a certain kind of a court proceeding. It is a certain kind of a court proceeding, all right, but it's a specialized kind of a court proceeding with limited objectives. What are the limited objectives in a probate proceeding? I would say there are three limited objectives of probate proceedings in court. There are three main purposes of or objectives of probate proceedings. First is to prove the valid execution of the will that through witnesses I've explained. Secondly, to prove the testamentary capacity of the testator. In other words, to show that the testator signed it of his own free will. He was mentally sane. Nobody is holding a gun to his head. So he did it of his own free will. That is called the testamentary capacity of the executor. That is the second thing. And the third is that if the will appoints an executor, and it usually does, then it proves the appointment of this executor. So these three are the limited purposes of certain probate proceedings. Having given you that introduction to probate proceedings, let me now try and explain why and when probate proceedings should be instituted at all. Why go in for probate? Well, when the British were here, they made certain laws, some of which still prevail. They imported their law into our country and made it a part of our law. And while in many senses we have moved away since independence from some of those laws, still uh, some of those laws or some vestiges of those laws still remain in our laws and constitute the law of the land. Under the law as it stands now, uh, this, as I said, is the Indian succession of 1925. 25 would be British days. Wills of Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, Jains, and Parthians have to be probated if the will was made in Bengal or Madras or Bombay, or it disposes of immovable properties in any of those places, that is Bengal or Madras or Bombay. Now, in these situations, a probate of a will is compulsory, and in these situations, when the dictator dies, an application should be made to the court 
for probate as soon as possible after the death. So it is compulsory, as I said, if the will was made Bengal, Madras or Bombay, or if it deals with immovable properties situated in those places, Bengal, Madras or Bombay. If not probated, the rights of the persons who have got anything under the will will not stand established. They will have no such right. In a situation where probate is compulsory, if probate is not obtained, although it is compulsory, then the people who are named in the will will get nothing. Their rights do, do not exist. They cannot be established. You will be told, where's the probate? And if you can't produce the probate, the will can be torn up and thrown away. It means nothing. The rights under the will can only be established if the will is probated and not otherwise. Now, uh, this then is the probate system. Now, I have explained I have explained that in certain situations, the probate is not compulsory. Which shows that in certain uh, in certain situation a probate is compulsory. This shows that in certain situation a probate is not compulsory. Suppose the will was not made in Bengal, Bombay, or Madras. Also, suppose it does not deal with any properties in Bengal, Madras, or Bombay. Suppose it was made in Karnataka and suppose it deals with properties in Karnataka, not Bengal, Bombay, Madras. In that case, probate is not compulsory. Okay, there is a will. You don't have to do anything about obtaining probate. Just sit tight. If the will is valid, that, that establishes your right to it. A probate is not compulsory. If your right to a property under that unprobated will is ever challenged in a court of law, then you have to produce that will in a court of law and prove it through the witnesses. And proving through witnesses I've already covered briefly. You have to have those witnesses. They have to go to court and say all the things that I've been talking about, but you don't have to have probate. You can sit tight, assume the validity of the will, and if and when unfortunately you're taken to court with somebody disputing your right under the will, only then, in those court proceedings, you can go and go ahead and prove that, produce that will, and prove it in court through the witnesses who are mentioned in that will. In this fashion, there is a distinction between a situation where a will has to be probated and a will does not have to be probated. If it is one where it has to be probated in Bengal, Bombay, or Madras, then we always advise people. Here in Kolkata, we do. That as, soon, as soon as somebody dies and people come to us for advice with a will, we say, quick, file a probate application, get that done. If you've done that, it establishes your right under a will and the signature under that will can no longer be challenged after probate. The probate establishes the signature on the will. Now, so much, I think, for witnesses. I think uh, I will just cover one more topic and won't say any more. 
if you have questions, then I'll try my best to answer them. The last thing that I'll say about this will is uh, relates to what are known as dependence. For this purpose, the law lays down a long list of dependents. When I say the law, there is a particular act. It's called the Hindu Adoptions and Maintenance Act, 1956. That lays down, that defines dependence. It's a long list of people. It includes all kinds of people who are dependents, who are statutorily defined as dependents. These include a widow, a son, and an unmarried daughter. These are only three instances. There are many others. I've taken three most important instances. The testator's widow, the testator's son, and the testator's unmarried daughter, they are dependents by statutory definition. Now, if the testator does not leave anything to these dependents, he leaves it to some others. He ignores his wife, his son, his unmarried daughter, and gives it to someone else. Then these dependents can go to court and claim maintenance from the person who has been given the properties under that will. We can say we are, they are, they can say that we are statutory dependents under this law that I've just mentioned. We are unable to maintain ourselves. You have been given this property, so we are claiming so much by way of maintenance. Significant things to note is that only the court can fix the amount of the maintenance. You have to go to court and the court will fix the maintenance. Another significant factor is that when the court fixes the maintenance, it has to have regard to the position and status of the parties. Who needs what? Who can pay what? If one of the claimants is very well off, he or she may not need maintenance. The court will say, you don't need maintenance. You're perfectly capable of maintaining yourself. You are earning enough. So sorry, case dismissed. No maintenance. So the court can fix the amount. It's only the court which can fix the amount of maintenance. But having due regard to the position and status of the parties. So that is the position regarding dependence. I think I have said enough. Some of it. Uh, sorry, I can't help that. It's become a bit technical. I've tried my best to explain technical legal points in an interesting and informative way. Thank you. That's all I'm saying. So any questions you can please ask, sir. Those who Please go ahead and ask questions. Please unmute yourself. Am I, I have given the advocates are message box. Sir, it is in your message box. I have some questions. Can you explain about 
whether a will should be registered or not and what's the difference no uh, a will a will does not have to be registered there are certain documents law requires for instance a same date of removable property to sell a land or house then that same deed has to be registered it's compulsory if you don't register the title does not pass so you have to register it but a will does not have to be registered there is no particular advantage in registering a will you can register anything voluntarily even when it is not compulsory and if you look at it like that you can voluntarily register a will but it it gives you nothing extra If it so is registered, you, you, can it be changed later? If yes, it is registered, can, can it be changed? Yes. Yes, it can be. Even a registered will can be changed, and it has been held that the will by which you change a registered will does not itself have to be registered. It has been held that an you can change a registered will by an unregistered will. Oh. Because registration. A joint will can it be changed after one person dies? Well, this is the mutual will situation. You know, I had some things to say about it. And now, if there is an agreement between the parties that each will leave a will, leaving his or her properties to the children, for instance. In this case, each one says. i leave my property to you my wife or you my husband for life and after that to our children both of them say this now in this scenario if one person dies after one person dies the husband or the wife then the other one can't change the will then she stuck with it this is the mutual will situation sir what hello sir डायरेक्ट ब्लड रिलेशन ऑफ द एग्जीक्यूटर कैन बी मेड एज ए विटनेसेस Yes, of course. There are no restrictions on who can be witnesses. A direct blood can be made a witness, and even a beneficiary. You know, suppose you leave ninety percent of your property to someone, your son. Can he witness the will? Well, of course. You can. Questions arose in certain court proceedings, but the 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 son is getting ninety percent of the property. He is a committed person. He will want to establish the validity of this will. So you know, his his uh, witnessing is not unbiased. You know, it's biased in his favor. But the court has said, no, no, not at all. Anybody can be a witness. This is so. Uh, so far as Hindus are concerned, there are some restrictions on beneficiaries becoming witnesses. So far as Christian. I haven't covered the situation relating to Christians. That is another side of the story. I haven't covered Christian law of succession. Okay, Usha, ma'am, you had something. Yeah, yeah. How does how does a living will differ from this will, sir? 
I beg your pardon. A living will. How does it differ? A living will. Yeah, the will can only something called a living will. Now, you say. Did you say a, li a living will? A yeah, something. Living? That's what we've heard. There's a living will. I'm not sure what it is. Oh, I'm very sorry. I never used that expression. A will no, not in now, but we've heard that there's a living will. I think it means that if we are in a last stages of life, we are not. We're no, not we I don't mean, want to go on ventilator what? and stuff like that. Yeah, is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, that is, is what it is. Life support will... should not be used. But I don't think yeah. in India they have a, a made it made it possible for us to do a living will. Will a they living have now. will they has to be now. made by a living person. So much is true. It has to be made by a living person. Whether you had the mental capacity or not to make the will. Suppose you are uh, mentally insane, then you don't have the capacity to make the will. So in a situation where your your mental capacity is suspect, where you are unable to make free decisions regarding the disposal of your property, your mental capacity may then be suspect. So if anybody wants to contend that this will is invalid, because when the testator signed that will, he didn't have the mental capacity to make that will because he was not in a position to take decisions regarding his property. Then yes, the will may be invalid, but that will have to be proved by medical evidence in a court of law. No, sir, I understood living will to be a statement by us when we are okay, saying that when we are on our deathbed, we do not want the use of ventilators or any life support to keep us alive unnecessarily. We want to go peacefully. That is my understanding yes. of a living will. I see. Uh, you can certainly say that, but it wouldn't be a will. A it, will it is, is a not valid. Is what, uh, my son is a lawyer. He says, Amma, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, I would say... I would say you can very well do that, but it is not a will. The document is valid, but it is not a will. Document. And, and, and doctors are not obliged to follow it also. Doctor is obliged to give the no, correct no, medical this is a, this is a, no, In India, this, it is not. No, this is an American expression. I have I have done my living will. Uh, I, I am an American citizen, but living in India, but I have made a living will. The will says if I am if I am out of consciousness, I am in my deathbed. No other medication except painkiller should be given. No attempt should be made to extend my life by you know medication or artificial uh, um, um, uh, respiration <coughs> or things like that. Don't make unnecessary efforts to prolong my life except painkilling. That is called the living will in America. It's an American expression, not generally known in India. It is not generally known in India because it is not generally used in India. Yeah, I have yeah, not read a single Indian case where this yeah, expression yeah. living will uh, has been used. Yeah. If such a miss were to happen in India, my own view is that it will be accepted as valid, but it will not be described as a living will. Because in, in sir, India, a will is something which disposes of property after death. And these sir, are instructions relating to what is to happen while the person is still alive. Sir, I have a question. I was, sir, I, I have a question. I have a question. Is it can a will impose 
certain con con conditions on the person to whom I bequeath my property. Suppose I bequeath my property to you, and I say you should use this much for this purpose, for this much for education of poor people, this much for uh, women's welfare. Can I impose conditions on on the person Check to it. whom I am bequeathing my property? Property. Well, I say, this uh, is a, a difficult question, but. Yes. Uh, you would be able to impose these conditions if a trust is implied. If yes. you leave a property on trust, then you can say the trust will use this much for this purpose, 30% for that purpose, another 30% for that purpose, and a trustee would then be bound by these directions. So you have to examine the will to see whether a trust can be implied from what has been said. If a trust can be implied from what has been said, then yes, a trust would be created and you can impose those conditions, which will be binding on the trustee and the trustee will then have to enforce these conditions. But if a trust cannot be implied, if there is no trust, then imposing these conditions may not be possible. If you're giving the property absolutely, then he gets it absolutely and these conditions then cannot be uh, Enforced. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, Thank you. Uh, Nantina, we can't hear you. Can't you? Am I audible? Can you hear? Can you yes. hear? Yes, yes. No. I, no. Sir, in, after making a will, if I sell one of the properties, should I make a codicil or I have to change the will completely? If you sell one of the properties, yeah. And one option op open to you, if you say made a will, and by that will you've disposed of several properties, then while you're still alive, you sell one of those properties. It's no longer yeah. yours. Kind now, of, uh, if you let us take a situation where you do that and then do nothing, you don't change the will, you don't make a condition, you know nothing. In yeah. that case, the will uh, will become invalid so far as that property sold is concerned but only okay. with regard to that one property. If I, okay. let me give you an example. Suppose, suppose I, I make a will leaving uh, the railway station in my city to you. Is that valid? Well, of course it's not valid because the railway not station valid. is not mine. I can't give yes. it away. Or you make a will leaving the governor's house in Pasan. It's not mine. We can't do that, you know, because yes. the property is not yours. Similarly, if the property was at one time yours, but in your lifetime, you've sold it away, then it automatically goes out of your will. And okay. the disposal you've made by will, that clause in that one clause in the will becomes invalid. If you say disposed of five uh, properties by your will, and then you end up selling one of those five in your lifetime, then the will is valid with regard to the four properties which are still with you at the time of your death. Yes, but it yes. is not valid with regard to that no. one property. But if, what, if I move, add another property, sir, that's what later. I'm saying. Yeah. If you if you bought another property and you've yes, not yes. disposed of it by will, then you either need to change your will or make a codicil disposing of that property. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. There is there is one other thing that can happen. Sometimes yeah. you make a will and you're not very sure whether you've covered everything or not. You wonder whether you've forgotten one piece of property. Suppose you have so many properties, you can't properly keep track. So yes. in your property, in your will, you can have a last concluding clause, 
saying that anything else that I have not disposed of, the, of by this way and which belongs to me at the time of my death will go to so-and-so. Now, if you buy a property afterwards, that could be covered by a clause like this. Okay. So if you buy a property after you make a will and you've got a clause like this in the will, make sure that that's the person you want it to go to. Want to, go to. That, is, that is the residuary legacy. The person who gets everything other than those specifically mentioned. Okay. Thank you very Specific. much. Thanks. Sir, my pleasure. Yeah. Any more questions? Sir, you had any questions? Yes, sir. Any more questions? Just, 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 One second. See, I just uh, wanted, I'm a Sariaman. I wanted to just know whether it's a better option to purchase settlement in rather than a uh, will. And, sir, we didn't well, hear uh, it properly. Uh, is it a good option to go for a settlement deal, given the situation in which I am 85 plus and seven you know, the comorbidity issues? Will it be a good option to go in for a settlement deed? Well, if you do a settlement deed, you will lose all rights over the property. Yes. Just a minute. Can I ask you a question, sir? Can and you hear me? By the way, the, what is the procedure for getting a probate of will? Yes. Uh, now, if you make a settlement deed now, can I, can I ask you a question, please? I'm can you hear me? One question. Uh, I'm Vasudevan. Can you hear me? Yes. I, I'm, I'm answering one question. Will you let me answer that question, please? Then ask sure, sir. Question. Yes. yes, I'm answering a question which has already been asked. I was interrupted by a phone call. Now, if you make a settlement deed, then yes. there are there could be expensive stamp duty and registration charges. Now, if that doesn't bother you, and you want to make the settlement deed now because you fear for the state of your health, then you can make the settlement deed now. But A, you have to pay the stamp duty and registration charges on it. And B, you will lose all control over it uh, if you do that. If you think that is okay with you, that you, you lose all control over it, it's no longer yours, yours, but you are still safe enough and protected enough, then go ahead and do it. But mm -hmm. if B, you want to avoid paying that stamp duty and those registration charges, which can be quite heavy, mm -hmm. and B, you uh, feel uncomfortable because the property has gone out of your control altogether. Now what to do? You, you have no control over it. Then better you don't make an immediate settlement. You put it in the will and the property yes. will just after yes. your death. This is the situation. Anyway, what is the procedure for getting a probate of will? You have to make an application probate. in the local court for getting probate. It's a court application. I see. Whichever court has jurisdiction over the property, you make a probate application. As expensive as a settlement deed, you're getting a probate of will? Well, a settlement deed has stamp duty and registration charges. There are this duty to be paid in a court of law is very little. The expenses of the court proceedings where you have to pay lawyers. So that you must assess and see uh, how much you have to pay your local lawyer to get this done. Vis-a-vis -vis the stamp duty you would have to pay on a settlement deed. This comparison you must make. I see. Thank you so, so much. My question to you is... Yes, yes, please uh, go ahead. Yeah. And my father expired. The original will was traced and then it, several copies were made and notarized. But the original will, we are not sure with whom it is safe custody. We are not able to locate it. What do we do? Can, can we manage only with the notarized copies of the will? 
how did you make the copy of the will if you didn't find the will in the first no before it was there after making copies is notarized them the original is misplaced or it's with somebody we don't know with whom it is we made but copies from the original will only okay uh, then you would have to lead evidence you can make an application for probate for instance mm -hmm. uh, attaching the the notarized copy of the will and explaining why you can't produce the original you have mm -hmm. to also explain how you are so sure that this is a copy of the will and not something made up afterwards because these questions will arise you have to explain to the court that you know the copies must have been made at that time so we found some of the copies unfortunately we can't find the original so you have to get the notarized copies and then the witnesses in that notarized copy have to go to court and give the kind of evidence that i have already talked about anybody challenging that will will of course try and come up with any contrary evidence that he may have then you'll have to contend with no. those nobody nobody is challenging it anything you know we all settle peacefully but we are still not able to trace the original copy of the original of the will that's the thing then if if it is if it nobody is going to challenge it then you have much better chance of getting probate on a copy of the will because nobody is going to give any contrary evidence or contradictory evidence okay thank you thank you vasan sir your question ah yes yes sir i got a question hello yes sir question yes, please ah one minute sir can i make a will sir can i make a will on my own on a plain paper and is it valid <laughs> absolutely you don't uh -huh. have to have any plain paper you don't uh, need to use any technical language you can say uh -huh. it in your own free words only thing is that one case that i had discussed you know when i was talking to you people about a What? lady who wrote it out in her own very nice flowery language but the trouble was it wasn't sure whether this was an immediate disposition by way of settlement or whether this was a will meant to take place after her death and it dragged all the way from the lower courts right up to the supreme court with all the trouble and delay and expense that that entails before a final judgment was obtained so you know while i'm sure your command of the english language is excellent because of these technicalities it might make sense to go to an advocate who can avoid those pitfalls acha